Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Printed Circuit Podcast, where we discuss trends, challenges, and opportunities across the printed circuit engineering industry. I'm your host, Steph Chavez. In this episode, we'll discuss our third pillar of the PCB design best practices, which is digitally prototype-driven verification. This pillar is all about shifting analysis to the left to increase the likelihood of on-time product launches. With me today, I have two Siemens experts and dear friends, David Waynes and Todd Westerhoff. Thank you for being here and diving into this important best practice with me. Happy to be here, Steph. Good to be here. Awesome. Dave, can you give the audience a, a brief introduction of yourself? I'm Dave Weens. I've been around the industry forever, just a couple of years short of Todd, but involved in the um, PCB design side of life and been talking about things like shift left for the last couple decades, really, hoping folks will pick it up and, and utilize some best practices. So it's a good, good thing to chat about. Awesome. Todd, can you give the audience a brief introduction of yourself as well? Sure. Todd Westerhoff. I've been doing modeling and simulation for digital systems for over 40 years now. I've been doing signal integrity for something like 27 years. I've been in, in and around EDA forever. I actually did some time as a hardware uh, engineering manager at Cisco, did some consulting for Intel, you name it, but kind of a very hands-on technical marketing guy. You know, the audience is in, in a real treat today. We've got some serious gurus and industry experts here. So let's get into it. Uh, what doesn't work today when it comes to verification? The obvious answer is when you plug it in, it doesn't work. Uh, something didn't, didn't get verified correctly. But, you know, we've done lots of surveys or worked with analysts that have done lots of surveys. And one of them showed, this was from Lifecycle Insights, it showed that for starters, 25% of the projects well, rather, only 25% of the projects came out on time without any extra resources. That's a pretty slim number of designs. 45% of them were either canceled or, or missed their release date. So that's the first kind of canary in the coal mine that something's going wrong. Obviously, uh, projects um, shipping late, you know, nobody likes that. But you know, there's obviously lots of reasons for, for project delays. But you know, that same survey showed that there were an average of, of three respins per project. A lot of teams now have, you know, we talk to have a goal of, of zero spin. Now, some people interpret, most people interpret zero spin to mean you did one prototype and it worked and then you went into volume. Real hardcore zero spinners say they go directly from design to volume. Now, that takes a ton, a ton of faith. And, you know, we'll talk about some different ways, hopefully, during this session that that might be possible. But again, most people say, I plug it in first time and it works, that's zero spin. Others have far more than three respins. You know, I've talked to some folks recently that were hitting up around 20. So uh, that's when you're really starting to pull your hair out and go, you know, God, I wish I had a better way to do this. To hit target release dates, if folks want to hit those, those dates that they say they, you know, they're, they're, they're going for, a lot of project managers will bake in those three to four respins. They'll just say, we're going to count on that happening. So they're basically planning to fail. They're going to fail three or four times, just to fail a few times, right? And then get it right. So to do those three to four spins, they do a lot of peer reviews. They try to design more conservatively, you know, hopefully make it work. And they, you know, try to leverage the limited number of specialists they've got to do some level of analysis. You know, the net result is that things slip through the cracks. There are delays, of course, and there can be extra product cost uh, due to that uh, conservative design approach. I can tell you from my Millero background, those baked in respins, they could be a double-edged sword. They're like a safety net. Oh, we'll catch it on the next spin. But then a lot of times there's never enough time to implement what should have been done on the initial spin. And you end up going to market with issues at hand knowing that, well, we'll just fix it in the field. 
and it's sad. Dave, we know what the problems can be. What is the best solution or the best practice that PCB designers should implement? Basically, if we're saying finding the problem in the field, as you noted, or finding problems in the lab, next best, if those we're saying aren't a good idea, well, then basically the idea is you catch more errors earlier, uh, ideally as close to the point where they're introduced as possible during the design process so that you have a really short, uh, you know, what we talk about, find and fix loop. You find a problem and, and can quickly fix it instead of having to wait for some long iteration back and forth with somebody else. So that involves, you know, a few things. That uh, involves, uh, you know, a constraint-driven design, and you know, we can talk about how those constraints should be designed in the first place. That involves integration of verification in multiple different flavors throughout a design process, and I think we'll probably chat about some of those today. But bringing them in throughout the process is really important, as opposed to just at the end, because that's kind of the, you know, the sign-off stage. And again, when you find problems there, it's great that you found it before you hit prototype but you're still into uh, you know, a longer find and fix loop. Doing things like automating those reviews. If you can do checks, uh, find ways to automate them. And then finally, trying to put tools in the hands of the design authors, you know, the design engineers, the layout designers, rather than having specialists uh, utilize those. The net result is hopefully you can cut down your, your project delays and, and cancellations, increase the time, taken to verify, it will take more time. That's one of the common complaints is I don't have time already. How can I take on another step? But the net benefit of taking on verification during design is that you obviously cut down on those those iterations that are frankly more costly with prototypes. And then the last thing is not just getting it working, but really optimizing it. So great, you designed conservatively and you got it out the door, but it was probably, you know, overly expensive and didn't really work as well as it could. You've got time. You can you can optimize. You're bringing up a really interesting point, Dave. About people go, I don't I don't have enough time, and yet I've already budgeted for three respins. So what would happen if you only needed one respin? Would you have the time then? Yep, exactly. I know Todd, you've been chomping at the bit to dive into this. So I have a question for you. Let's talk about some real examples of shifting left, specifically around signal integrity and power integrity. Todd, how are people verifying their routed designs today? And what do they do once routing is complete to ensure the board is ready for fabrication? Good question. And, and particularly, let's focus on signal and power integrity. You know, I often say that the question becomes, we just got the board routed. Now what? Is it okay? Can we go fab it out? And what do you have to do to, to clear that for fab out? And I often say people take one of three approaches, right? One is that they, they design the guidelines, right? They find either best practice rules, or they go to their semiconductor vendor and say, what are the reference rules for this kind of a design? And they place and route the board according to that. And then once they're done with the layout, they, they eyeball it. They do a visual design inspection, and then they, they hope for the best. They just build it and, and hope it works in the lab. And you know, there's a fair amount of faith involved in that, right? You design it to rules, you put the constraints on the board, the, the constraint manager in the CAD tool says, it's all good, and you just build it and hope it works. The other thing people do is they do analysis, but they don't, they don't really have the skill to do it themselves, so they, they hire somebody. You know, there, there are outside firms, some people hire, that will do analysis for you. You know, you give them the database, you give them what they need to know about that design, and they'll, they'll run it and give you a report back. I actually used to work for a company that did that for a living. But the, the challenge is if they find anything wrong, well, then you have to go fix it. 
once you fix it, well, now you want to get it checked again. Well, they're not going to check it again for free. So you've got <laughs> you've got an outside consulting firm that has to do all this modeling and simulation, and you got to go pay them again. You got to go back and get back in their queue. So you can imagine, you know, I mean, you might eliminate a respin, but you've still got a significant loop time there. And then what a lot of people do is that they have signal and power integrity experts in their company that do analysis as a service sort of within the company, right? But they're they're really overloaded. They've got this long work queue, right? I I always joke about that picture of the line of people waiting to go up to the top of Mount Everest. And I'm like, you know, that's the average hardware team waiting for signal integrity time in any major company, right? And so the challenge then is they're still stuck, right? You know, maybe they didn't have to pay somebody outside, but they had to go wait for that expert's time. And ultimately what they have to do is they have to prioritize which interfaces are going to get coverage at all and which interfaces we're just going to hope for the best. Clearly, you want to have more confidence when you fab out a board that things are going to go work, but it's just really hard to do that level of verification. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I love that analogy about Mount Everest and the hardware team waiting for I've been there, done that, and and been in those long waiting lines. (laughs) My favorite picture has got a guy with a desk with a computer at the top of Mount Everest and you know, he's got a signal integrity analysis on the screen, and then there's this line of people off in the distance. <laughs> we laugh and joke about it, but that's reality. I mean, anybody who's been in that instance, has been in that line, knows that's true reality there. One of the questions that I've had over the years with my background is that when it comes to routing, do you follow the, the app notes? Do you follow vendor guidelines? You know, what's your take? What is the problem with routing to vendor guidelines? Good question. And theoretically, there isn't a problem doing that. I spent two years of my life helping Intel design guidelines for the, some of the original Xeon uh, processors and boards. And you know, a lot of the semiconductor vendors, they put a lot of time and effort. They spend millions and millions of dollars figuring out what those guidelines ought to be and doing hundreds of thousands of simulations to figure that out. So theoretically, nothing. They're great. The challenge is, what happens if the board you're designing doesn't meet the assumptions those guidelines were based on? Case in point, what will happen is when, when Intel or AMD or anybody goes off and they, de- they do a reference design, first of all, often they're not trying to build a board that can be manufactured in very high volume. They're trying to prove that that processor works. They're going to tend to, the natural influence on them is to use a more expensive material, to use more layers, right? To do things because it, it's never been built before. You can't cost reduce something that you've never built and proven works. So when you build the first version of anything, you tend to go the extra mile in terms of material and effort because you you want to increase your margin. And reference designs just sort of naturally look like that, right? They tend to be a little bit more expensive. They tend to be a little bit thicker. They tend to be laid out with a little bit more care. They're very, very, very well done. But now I'm going to go put this thing in production and make a million of them. And so there's an incredible pressure on me to say, can you... Can you knock a layer pair out of that? You know what a layer pair costs us? Do we really have to pay for the, the finish on those copper layers? Can't we get away with you know something that's a little less rough? Or there are a million reasons why somebody wants to come back and cost reduce a board. Or your board, your cabinet doesn't look like that. So there's a hole right in the middle of where the memory array needs to be. And it's a mounting hole or something like that. So in practice, the guidelines have to get bent in a lot of cases, right? They're either bent for cost or they're bent for form factor or you name it. And 
if all you've got is a don't break this guideline and you have to bend it, what's the impact of bending it? You have no way of knowing. That becomes the challenge is if you can't follow the rule absolutely, how can you assess the cost of bending the rule if you have no analytical basis to do that with? And that, that's the fundamental conundrum. One thing I have definitely come to learn over the years is that to try to mitigate your risk as much as possible and know that the, the risk that you do have to live with, it's within acceptability and you deal with it and move on. But be aware of it. I think that's the, the biggest issue is people are not doing their route analysis and they're just flying blind and hoping for the best. And I'll ask you this, you know, why are people running more structured post-route analysis? Because it's hard and because they're scared of it. So I've been an EDA, I've been an EDA since before it was called EDA. CAE hadn't been invented when I got into this game because I was doing uh, board test simulation. But <laughs> I'm going to sound like the grumpy old man here. You know, 40 years ago, when I was a boy, people were excited about learning new tools because there weren't that many tools. So when, when EDA got started, people were actually enthusiastic about learning other tools and incorporating them and modifying them to their needs because there was nothing. So why wouldn't they be? But we're in a completely different world today. We're all overrun with more information and more tools and more things to learn than we can possibly manage. And so when you come at, at an engineer and go, hey, here's this great new tool. Why don't you go learn it? They're like, "Ugh, you know, I don't want to learn anything. I, I can't handle all the stuff I've already got. And signal integrity is one of these things that it's sort of like a threefold problem. First, you have to understand the theory, right? You have to understand the physical basis of what this phenomena is and why it happens and what the physics are. And you have to know it really well, right? To be able to predict how something is going to happen. And then you need a tool that can go analyze that. But the tool's not enough because there's a million different ways to use the tool. And some of them are going to work and some of them are not. And some of them are going to be productive and some of them are not. So I need a methodology for how I apply the tool to the problem. And I need all three. Take any one of those three legs of that stool out and the stool falls over. So I need to, I just need to understand the physics pretty well. I need, I need a good tool. And then I need a methodology so that I can actually derive a useful result. And that's enough to turn most people off. I don't have the, go, the time to go do that. And so what most people do is they rely on the guy, that old two and a half men episode. Why don't you call the guy? I thought that episode was hysterical, but that's the way I explain it to people is signal integrity has become a call the guy problem. My car needs new brakes, take it to the guy. The computer doesn't work, take it to the guy. I need signal integrity analysis, go to the guy. And so that's what's happened is that people have decided it's too complicated for me. I can't do it by myself. So I'm going to find somebody else to do it for me whether it be an in-house you know, service or whether it be an outside agency. And we're trying to get people past that hump by saying, you know, we can take these tools and methodologies, we can package them into something that really is sort of a complete flow out of the box with some examples and some instructions. So it's more like you buy the meal in a box and you follow the instructions. That's what you're, you're trying to turn signal integrity into. But you're just dealing with this inherent fear that it's too complicated for me. And then you've got the people that are sort of at the, the state of the art, right, that like to, they're in love with the last 
of whatever the effects they're trying to analyze are. And so they, I think they, they amplify that, that, you know, anxiety that a lot of people have about approaching the subject in the first place. The sad thing is, is that when the decision is made, let's just skip it and we'll catch it next time. We don't have time to do the analysis and we'll move on. Then they wonder why they have problems when they get it in the lab or, or they, you know, if they're foolish enough to go to the field with it. It's just sad. But when we talk about tools and we think about tools, what skill sets are needed to run signal integrity and power integrity? I want to key off one thing you just said in terms of we'll catch it next time or we'll debug it in the lab. One of the things that's important to understand about signal and power integrity problems is they don't manifest themselves reliably. Like a functional error is pretty easy to catch. But, you know, a signal integrity problem, like you wave your hand over the board and all of a sudden it starts working again, or obviously you put the probe on a node, now it works, and you take the probe off and it fails. So what makes the problem that much harder is that when, when things get to the point of failure, those failures are often erratic, which is the worst problem to have from an engineering perspective, right? From a debugging perspective, having a problem that's erratic is just the biggest nightmare going. That's why stuff like this is worthwhile. When we look at skill set, I typically break it into three tiers of, of skill set, right? You know, and I'll, I'll go up from the, you know, sort of entry level. So entry level is, is sort of the equivalent of the DIY enthusiast, enthusiast that goes to Home Depot and frames their own walls and, you know, builds their own bathroom in the basement, right? You get hardware engineers who are generally responsible for system design. They can they, capture schematics, you know, they, they, drive, they drive the teams that do the layout. Sometimes they do the layout themselves. And generally speaking, they're not people that are going to go do signal integrity. But some of them, they understand it well enough, they're motivated enough, and they've just got enough of a background that they do it themselves, right? And so I almost, you know, like I said, they're kind of like the, the home owner that's the enthusiast that would go to, go to Home Depot and buy the fancy tools and be able to do their own framing. Not a lot of people can do that. I wish more people could go do it, but that's kind of where we are, system engineering and signal integrity today. The next level up is somebody I call a specialist because they do signal and power integrity for a living. That's their job. Crudely speaking, they're sort of the equivalent of the mechanic at, at the shop that you go to where you get your car serviced, right? They do this all day long. This is their only job. They've got a couple of different skill sets. They may be more specialized in one, like somebody might be, I'm the CERTES person or I'm the DDR person. So often they kind of have a specialty, even though they kind of got a general skill set, but they're often in a service capacity for other people, either within their company or in, in another company. And then the specialists do it full time, but most of the people that are sort of doing this day to day, they're sort of like the equivalent of the, the mechanic at the shop, right? This is what they do. But then there's, there's another layer on top that sort of invented the process that they're using, right? There's the, the true craftsmen, I call them technologists, who actually figured out what that whole process should be. Because most people are doing signal integrity, they'll go off and buy a bunch of tools from different companies, and then they'll figure out how to glue them together themselves, and they'll invent their own methodology, right? They invent that process. We're going to use this solver for that. We're going to use this circuit simulator for that. We're going to go over here in MATLAB and run this analysis and you patch it all together and voila, you know, we've got an answer for whether the board is going to work or not. And it's the technologist in those companies that are typically the team leads or the managers that sort of figure out how to pull all these pieces together. They invent that flow. They document it to some degree, typically, 
not extensively, then the other people practice that. So in my view, you've kind of got the technologist who's the true craftsman. You've got the specialists that do it, do it for a living. Uh, and then you've got the, you know, the hardware engineer that some of them can go do that analysis themselves. But the challenge is that there just aren't enough technologists and specialists to go around. And so for the reasons that we just said, a lot of the boards that are getting built are really not getting verified. And in layout, let's face it, mistakes happen. So the issue is all of that stuff slips through and starts causing board spins. And the worst is to make uh, when we have project decisions that are made or poor project decisions that are made by simply skipping analysis. And and then they end up wondering why it's burning them in the back end. Uh, That's an issue, especially when we talk about rules, that stuff can be put up front to prevent that. So when we talk about rules such as like design uh, rule checking, DRC, what do you see, Todd, as the role for DRC? The interesting thing that happens with signal integrity is we immediately go to this concept of ultimate accuracy. More on that later, I guess. But a lot of people think like, if you don't model everything you can think of, then there's no point in running that simulation, right? DRC is, is often more of a uh, graphical or a, a spatial check, right? So it, it's often not quite as simulating and, and analysis-based. But the interesting thing is that it's fast, right? And there's a lot of things that you can find very quickly with DRC or a DRC engine that would be really hard to find through modeling and simulation. And in my world, I mean, we talked about this already, right? Somebody finishes laying on a board. The first thing the company wants to do is fab it out. You're done. Good. Let's fab it out. No, 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 no. We need to verify it. Okay. You've got two hours and 43 minutes. Whatever it happens to be, it's some, it's some incredible minimal schedule next to everything that you did to lay that board out, you know, the time that we allocate to verify it before we fab it out, even though of the consequence of getting it wrong, you know, it, it's hugely compressed. So DRC is something that I can set up in a couple of hours and run in a couple of hours. One of my favorite examples is traces crossing splits and reference planes, right? Hanging out in space, radiating, radiating energy. And people often eyeball that, right? Like a lot of people who don't have a tool to go do it with, they'll eyeball it. And yeah, sure, you would think it's something that you can find quickly visually because it sticks out like a sore thumb. Try doing it on a 24-layer board that's like the size of a large server without going blind. You will miss things. And yet there's a big consequence for it. So that's the kind of thing like where you can take a board and you can scan it for like trace over split, I don't know, in 10 seconds and come back and find stuff. And if you, if you modeled that and tried to simulate that and find it that way, you would spend weeks or months. And even then, it's not obvious that the impact would be all that great anyway. So my goal is when I get a board that I want to fab out, when I'm standing in front of fab out for a laid out board, I want to get as many problems off the table as quickly as I possibly can. I want to get them back to the designer, and, and I do not want to be the person that's holding that board up for no reason. So DRC allows me to run a whole plethora of things and find a whole bunch of problems right away and say, it, really, you go through a decision process, right? It's kind of like straining things through progressively finer sieves. So when I run DRC and I find a potential problem, I look at it. The first thing I think is, okay, A, is this obviously broken? Like, it's so obvious, okay, that is messed up. Boom, right back to layout, right? I don't need to do any more thought. Here, go fix that. The second thing is, is it obviously okay? 
yeah, okay, I see why the tool thought it was a problem, but it's not. So then that's an automatic pass. I don't care. And then the thing that's left is, eh, it's unclear. It might be, it might not be, right? That's where more analysis now comes into play. But DRC allows me to take a lot of things off the table quickly, which means if I run out of time, which I almost always do, then I want to run out of time knowing that I detected everything I possibly could. And that's where I think it's super helpful. Saving time is the key in being able to do this very quickly with the automation horsepower we have in today's tool is utilizing that horsepower to your advantage or to our advantage is can't preach that or say that enough. You mentioned process, you know, especially with the high level of how and who's doing what. And when we think about the overall process, you know, when it comes to post route verification, what comes first, you know, when a user is running analysis? It's really boring. The reason I'm chuckling is because it's the least glamorous thing you can imagine. Setup. Boring, nasty, horrible stuff like getting models, but most importantly, looking at your stack up and making sure that the stack up that you have in your board database really reflects what will be built. Because what happens is most of the time people build boards and, you know, obviously they're going to get the layers right, right? Like if you're building a 12 layer board, there will be 12 metal layers in that board. That's guaranteed. You can't get that wrong out of a CAD database and have any hope of building a board. But if when we do simulation, we're modeling the electrical behavior of these signals. And, you know, when you build a board, you build a board in a specific way. You pull specific material off the shelf. It has specific thickness, specific pro- you know, properties. You pull cores and prefrags. You put them together in a particular order. You press them a particular way. And if you're not capturing all of the key parameters of what that fabricated board looks like, that stack up in your simulation, then you're not simulating what you're going to go build. And what's the point? You know, I come in here, somebody goes, this bolt won't fit in this, uh, in this hole. What's wrong? And you go, I don't know. I, I simulated it. I hold up a simulation model of like a baseball or something, right? Because I, I simulated something completely different. Like, well, yeah, duh. There's your problem, right? But it turns out it's, it's really pretty involved figuring out what does, a, what does a fab house actually build when you give them a database. The thing that's almost guaranteed is whatever I get from the CAD designer, the PCB layout person, chances are that stack up is nothing more than a, than a generic representation that has nothing to do with what I'm actually going to build. It's just a template, right? The, the layers are right, but the properties are wrong. And so now I have to go, you know, really think about with the fabricator, how are we going to go build this? And it, and it matters a big deal, right? Like if I do a buildup, if I've got like a, a very high speed board with cores in the middle and I've got sequential lamination on the outer layer with prefrag and foil, that is going to be inherently rougher and have higher loss than if I'm, you know, building something with cores. And that's a common strategy for building very high speed boards. So if I'm not modeling all of that, if I'm not modeling that buildup and that, you know, and that roughness that I'm going to get as a result of it, and I'm trying to go design my 112 gigabit Ethernet you know, interface or whatnot, I'm just going to be way off. So step one is, even as boring as it sounds and as boring as it is, is make sure that you get the details of that model absolutely right. Because if you don't, all the simulation that you're doing is just based on a false premise. And guess what happens to all your results and all your conclusions? So Todd, you and I have had some awesome discussions on this shift left topic uh, many a time. So I've heard you talk about getting real with SI uh, analysis, you know, over and over. Let's be clear. What exactly do you mean or does that mean? 
So it, it means what we were just alluding to, right? That know that you're simulating what you will actually build and to that degree, even measure what you build to make sure that it is what you thought it was, right? I mean, when we, when we get a prototype back in the lab, we, not, we shouldn't only measure it, we should cut it apart. I've seen people do this a lot, right? Where they take something, they section it, they measure what the actual physical geometries were, not just what they thought they were, not what they were supposed to be, but what they actually were. You've got to close that loop, right? Between modeling and simulation. A simulator will let me model and simulate anything I want, whether I can build it or not. You want to you model traces floating in free space? Knock yourself out. You know, I can model that and simulate it all day long. I can't build it, but I can, I can model it and simulate it and predict it. And so getting real is closing that loop, right? Knowing that what you built and what you simulated are the same thing. And as we said, working with your fabricator to really make sure that you, you know what's going to happen. I've seen a lot of cases where we'll get a database from a customer and there'll be a stack up and, oh, yep, it's real. You know, I went and I plugged it in or I verified it with so-and-so, whatever it is, right? They say, it's real. We know it's real. And then, and then we'll take it into a tool like Z0Z Planner, where we actually have a library of real materials that we can pick from. And we can ask ourselves, could you build this stack up? Did these materials actually exist? Or in some cases, you know, if they, they know what they think the materials are. And it's amazing how often you get a stack of that, you, that they thought was real, which turns out to be generic. And then when you map it into actual materials, there are tiny changes. They're not huge, but they're, they're changes. And when you simulate what they handed you versus what it is after you correct it for something you could actually build, you end up with 5%, 10% difference. And as my friend Bill Hargan likes to say, if you're simulating something that doesn't correspond to what you're building, it's like paying a voluntary tax. How many of us would just go to the government and go, hey, here's 5% of my income. I don't care. You know, you can have it. I didn't need it. But if, if you're not knowing that what you're simulating is what you're actually building, you're doing the same thing. You know, you're paying that tax for no good reason. I definitely agree with doing it for no good reason. I always hear users talk about simulation accuracy. What is required there? I think a lot of the talk about accuracy gets driven by the people that are driving the state of the art, right? Sort of the technologists who are at the top of that technological pyramid. Because as we go faster and faster, right? We went from 28 gig to 56 gig to 112 gig to 224 gig, right? You know, new physical phenomena come into play that become increasingly more esoteric to try to understand and model and, and predict, right? It just gets harder. And so... Typically, if, if you're talking to a technologist that, you know, all they care about is the tip of the pyramid because that's where they live, they'll talk about whatever the newest thing is, right? And, and they'll talk about that as though that's the only thing that matters. I often call it electron spin under, you know, the influence of the moon's gravitational pull or some other equally esoteric effect. And yeah, you know what? It's very important to them based on the tip of the spear, state-of-the-art problem that they're trying to solve. But the assumption that they make is that everything else is in order, right? Every other more coarse physical effect that they ever came, you know, that's all, that's all a given. And the bulk of us aren't doing 224 gigabit Ethernet design. We're running around trying to get PCI Gen 5 right at 32 gigabit, 16, you know, 16 gigahertz uh, Nyquist. And so we don't need to do that level of analysis. I think the thing that people miss with modeling and simulation is they think like, well, it's a computer. I just punch the button. The computer does the work. What do I care? It's not true. 
The more accurate you want to make a model, the more time it takes to generate it, the harder it is to configure it and get it right, and the more time you should actually spend verifying the model. Remember the part about setup is boring? <laughs> the more time that you should actually take taking that data and making sure it was it's worth running the rest of the analysis you plan to run on it. And so there's a very direct cost. The more accurate I make something, the harder it is. And it's not a linear relationship. It's more like an exponential relationship, right? The more accurate I make it, the, you know, it gets much higher from a compute expertise period, right? It becomes much more expensive. And so it's important when we do analysis to realize that that's a real trade-off. If I come to you and say, I can give you an answer that is within 10% in 15 minutes, I can give you an answer that's within 5% in three hours, and I can get it to 2% in three days. Which do you want? You'll pick it based on where you are in your process at the time, right? You, You won't always pick the same thing. And that's the thing that I think we need to understand with simulation is that there's really a range of analysis accuracy that we need depending on where we are in the process. And we're going to change our strategy dynamically based on the need because we've sort of heard or been influenced by these people that are only sort of doing, you know, state-of-the-art research. We've got this distorted view of the usefulness of something that isn't 100% accurate. And we need to get practical here because there are a lot of people that need to be practicing this stuff. That, that are not about to learn what it takes to go play at the 224 gig limit. And so we have to get practical about how do we do these trade-offs and when are different forms of analysis useful. I would tell you today's uh, designs are much more challenging than years past, that's for sure, or decades past. When I hear analysis or discuss analysis from conference to conference, you know, what is compliance analysis and why is it beneficial? Not a good example of like, differences in accuracy, right? So compliance analysis, let's, let's pick one specific term. I can, I can make it generic, but let's pick one particular example. So if I'm designing a high-speed serial link, most of those standard protocols lay out what the requirement for the interconnect itself is, right? The ball-to-ball from you know, IC to IC. There are specific requirements, right? You have to have this kind of loss. You can't have more than this amount of mode conversion and dot, 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 a whole bunch of stuff, right? Now, What a system designer does, they don't design ICs. They put ICs on board, but they design boards. They design interconnect. And so, you know, as a system designer, my creative decision-making and my analytic analysis is really around what I'm going to build, which is a board. So if you can come to me and say, here are the requirements for that interconnect from ball to ball, and you have to meet these requirements, that's a lot easier problem to model and analyze and evaluate than saying, okay, now when I put this very complicated transmitter on it and this very complicated adaptive real-time receiver on the other end of it, and I run this stuff with this pattern, what kind of margin do I get at the receiver? Compliance analysis is saying, does my interconnect meet the requirements of the standard, period? In some ways, you could think of it as, okay, I'm going to take a generic transmitter, I'm going to take a generic receiver, I'm going to simulate it and see what I get. It's, It's sort of the literal equivalent of that, even though it's somewhat analytically different. And the point is that it's standard. When I talk about serial links and I go get a model from my transmitter vendor and I get a model from my receiver vendor, I'm typically getting what's called an IBIS AMI model. And IBIS AMI models come in different flavors. And the way that I have to set up and run the simulation changes depending on the combination of models that I got. And the way that I have to interpret the models changes based on you know what the user did or what the vendor did when they built their receiver model. And so it's a much more complicated 
expertise intensive problem about, you know, I'm going to go get the vendor transmitter, the vendor receiver and do this analysis. Whereas with compliance, it's always the same. If I'm doing 56 gigabit ethernet, some particular protocol, all right, I always do the same analysis. And it's because it's the same, it means it can be automated. And because it's automated, it means it's easier for me to go do reliably and repeatably. And so compliance analysis is taking interconnect, making sure it meets some standard, and then assessing its compliance with that standard in a, in a specific and material way. And the beauty of it is, because it is based on the standard, it never changes, which means we can automate it. And therefore, I can make it accessible to a much wider group of people than the people who could go take simulation models and configure them. Sure, sure. You know what? I've heard you use the term progressive verification a lot. What does that mean? Progressive verification tries to really take all of those pieces together and, and try to, tries to put a tag on it. So we talk about the idea that we, we finish laying on a board, we have a limited amount of time to verify it with, and we want to take as many problems off the table as fast as possible. That's our premise, right? The other premise is we're, we're probably going to run out of time at some point. You know, they're probably not going to give us the time to do everything we want. So again, we're going to take as many problems off the table as possible. And how are we going to do that? What process are we going to follow? And it's, it's really pretty simple. It, we start with DRC because we can set things up quickly and we can run it quickly and we can take a lot of problems off the table quickly. We follow it with what we just talked about, compliance analysis, because it's standards-based and it's repeatable and it's understandable and it doesn't change. I don't have to go understand new stuff about my particular transmitter and receiver to be able to do that. And then once I do that, then I go and I say, okay, I'm going to do the more accurate form where I bring in the vendor model and I do that analysis, right? I do the quickest stuff first. I do the stuff that's sort of in the middle accuracy-wise next. And I take the stuff that is the most time and expertise intensive, and I delay that until the end. Because if I'm going to bring out the big guns, right, if I'm going to bring my SI experts into it, I'm going to make them put all this time into modeling, I better have taken all the simple stuff off the table. I better run DRC and found all the stupid stuff. I better run compliance analysis and take all the obvious things off the table. And there better be only the harder problems left. Otherwise, I'm not making good use of their time. I couldn't agree with you more that, especially, you know, after three decades of, of designing boards, my evolution is that the designer should be picking off the low-hanging fruit. You know, it starts with designing with best practices to prevent as much as possible and to do a low-level analysis within the design process or throughout the design process. So when you do hand it to that expert or that specialist, they are truly focusing on the more difficult, more complex challenges of the design itself. Dave, I have a question for you. Does the shift left strategy apply to other areas besides SI and PI? In the years that we've been doing this, signal integrity has been probably the, the most analyzed and around for, uh, for the longest, but probably of equal length is, is thermal. Thermal analysis has been around for a really long time. So if I, if I just kind of went through just kind of thinking about a design flow, you know, what, what other kinds of analysis could be used? The first would be like a, you know, a schematic analysis. You know, most people think Todd talked about DRCs. He was specifically talking about DRCs of a physical design, but you can do DRCs of a, of a logical design. And most schematic tools have some level of, of DRC engine, but they're generally pretty inadequate to actually find complex errors, um, things like unconnected pins based on the logic. 
connections to power and ground, address and data, bus errors, or even proper use of derating capacitors, things like that, or even connectivity across series resistors and even multiple boards. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that can easily be uh, created and it's often pretty hard to find. And so unlike other kinds of analysis where you can do spot checks, analysis of a schematic really has to be 100%. You've got to get 100% coverage. And the most basic way people do schematic analysis today is peer reviews. And peer reviews, man, they can miss stuff. So doing more detailed analysis of the schematic kicks in. You know, we had had uh, one company that had a problem that they did multiple prototype spins and took them seven months, a seven-month delay. And, you know, it was ultimately due to a schematic error. They went and tried and ran some analysis on it and and found and fixed it in less than two weeks. So, you know, two weeks sounds like a long time, but man, in comparison to to seven months, it's incredibly short. Back to thermal. You know, thermal, again, is is something that's been around for a while. I I know at least a couple of decades, but frankly, people have not been using it. They haven't been using it because they can get away without using it with uh, conservative rules of thumb. It's a common theme. They place parts just far enough apart. They do these these kind of pyramid models uh, to roughly figure out how far parts should be, or they apply you know excessive cooling strategies, and worst case they iterate in a shake and bake chamber you know and but that that again those are lots of iterations to find stuff. Of course, when you get uh, power requirements, the density requirements, the high speed requirements, you know Todd would would attest to this. You know you you place parts farther apart, you're not going to get your your speed that you need between different components. So, you know, really those things have impacted it and forced people to, to really need to use thermal during the design process. It's something that's sometimes it can fit on the EDA side of life, you know, in what you know, would typically be a PCB flow. Sometimes it fits on the mechanical side. Sometimes it's the mechanical engineer doing that during their authoring. But in both cases, it's the author that's often executing that kind of analysis. The really advanced stuff is now starting to look across, you know, different domains, like taking into consideration some of the parasitic effects that come out of signal integrity analysis and applying them to circuit performance. And then, of course, you know, analog mix signal. Analog mix signal analysis has been around for forever. And there, the, you know, the common issue is the standard practice is you go recreate your schematic or at least a portion of your schematic that you want to simulate. You go simulate, you find, find what you want to find. And then you go recreate that in your primary schematic capture tool. That's just, you know, it's a pain of iteration and it has the potential to introduce lots of errors in the process. So the final one would really be manufacturability. Design for fab, design for assembly, design for test. This one, boards ultimately have to be built. They have to have a high producibility. And there's nothing worse than, than an engineer, you know, having released the board, moved on to the next project. And then they get called in because some problem was found on the last board they were working on. So it's constantly getting, you know, that kind of boomerang back into old designs. So design for fab, design for assembly, design for test, common things that that, a designer has to think about. And there's nothing worse than releasing a design, moving on to the next project, being happy you got the last one done, and then getting yanked back in because something was found in fab. The first place in this case where analysis tools were applied was on the fab floor. Fabricators learned fairly quickly that you know they didn't want to get blamed for a design that didn't work. So they started running their own checks. And when they'd find a problem, they'd flip it back to the designer and they'd have to they'd start the iterations in that, that, that way. 
So that's one cause of iterations. You know, another cause, and it's potentially worse, is that fabricators can introduce their own errors into a design process. They can look at it. You know, first of all, if you send them a bunch of di different files, you send them your Gerbers, you send them your drill files, and they stitch it all together, they do it wrong, you get an instant error. Another is that to achieve the producibility that they've promised you, they may actually change your line width. They may do other changes. They may change your dielectrics. And so all that wonderful analysis that Todd's talking about, you know, is just out the window. So it really behooves you to get the, you know, the rules that they plan on running, build them into your process early, run those checks, you know, on the, on the design tool while you're doing design. I mean, this is, this is probably the best example of shift left we've got, where checks were done in manufacturing. Those shifted to the last part of design into that sign-off phase where you'd run a check before you shift it over. And now it's shifting all the way into the authoring tool where people are actually doing checks during the design process to optimize or even target manufacturers that they might have in mind. That goes to what I always say about collaborating with your fabricator and talking to your fabricator. You have that information, so you are shifting it. So that way you're doing it at the tail end of the design versus throwing over the fence and expecting gold when you tossed over, you know, potentially garbage to the fabricator. Dave, when we talk about these uh, strategy that we go into this, these type of analysis, what are the typical roadblocks that you see and, you know, how do people overcome them? I mean, Todd brought up uh, plenty of, of roadblocks. At a high level, roadblocks look like software ease of use. You know, how automated is it? How integrated is it into the flow? The models for that simulation, you know, models for the fuel, fuel for the engine and trying to find that right balance of model accuracy and the time it takes to, you know, to run it. Compute power fits in there. Of course, having that, I mean, in the sense of having the compute power available to do whatever analysis you need to run. Applying verification during the design process is a new methodology, you know, as we talked earlier on, that takes time to incorporate that into a design process. So, being aware that, okay, I'm going to take more time during my design, but I'm going to reap the benefits later. It's a mental, mental thing to overcome. And then lastly, just that culture and inertia that comes from the, the current process saying, hey, you know, it's, it's working close enough right now. Three spins is enough. Let's keep with the current method. Let's not, uh, let's not try to rock the boat. I agree. A lot, a lot of companies tend to stay within their comfort zone of their, their status quo process and maintain their, their level of success that they had not to rock the boat. If you look at it, okay, what's the benefit? I mean, I hate ending, you know, ending on a negative, right? The benefit of leveraging that digital twin during the design process is an easier and faster verification process. And ultimately, it's you know, higher quality products um, without the time and costly respins that typically people take on. So look at it from that perspective. Better quality, less time. I would argue the process is also likely convergent. If you're not using any kind of systematic analysis and verification, you're really not guaranteed that you're eventually going to get that thing to work. We have covered a lot in this uh, podcast and we can go on and on, but, you know, due to the time constraints, you know, I can't thank you and, and Dave enough. Uh, we've outlined the best practices when it comes to digital prototype driven verification. And again, thanks for your invaluable insight. It's been amazing. I'm sure we can have a continuation on in another podcast following up because this is we we're just touching the tip of the iceberg, if you ask me, and I think you would agree with me. So to our audience, keep following along for more PCB design best practices.